one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, the podcast with two author interviews and five book reviews every single week. Well, how are you doing? Are you okay? First of all, actually, I'm going to tell you what books we've got coming up this week. And then I'm going to tell you, I'm going to follow on from my story last week about what I was doing to stop my running plateauing. Um, Because, uh, yeah, as with everything with me, it didn't quite work as well as I'd hoped. But anyway... The books we've got this week. Uh, the first one is Essex Dogs by Dan Jones. And we've got Dan coming on to tell us all about this book. Then we've got One of Our Ministers is Missing by Alan Johnson. And Alan's coming on to answer five questions in five minutes. Then we've got Four Treasures of the Sky. And that's by Jenny Tingui Zhang. Then we've got Black Hearts by Doug Johnston. And then finally, True Crime Story by Joseph Knox. So lots to look forward to in this episode. Well, as I say, just to sort of a brief recap from last week, I'd been told I needed to do some different exercise. I plateaued, basically, and I needed to do something that would get the the old heart rate going a little bit more. And so I remembered having this app on my phone years and years ago called Zombies Run, and I hadn't used it. And I thought, I know that might make me run faster. So I just set off on my normal morning run and you can listen to your normal music, whatever you're listening to as you go. And then it starts to tell you a story as well. So the story was that I was living in a fort um, and everywhere else in the world there were zombies. And I was chosen as a runner for the fort to run and collect provisions and obviously avoid zombies in the process. So I'm like running along. Oh, this is fine. I'm I'm doing well. And then I heard this. Zombies detected 100 metres. And I'm thinking, well, I don't like the fact that zombies have been detected. 100 metres, that's ages away. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then it says zombies detected 50 metres. And at this point, your girl's starting to pick up her pace a little bit. Then you get zombies detected 20 metres, at which point I was running fairly fast. And then, to top that, all I could hear in the back of my headphones was this. I'm going to try and recreate it for you. Like that, but done better. 
It's zombies in the back of your headphones. I have never run so fast. My little legs and my flat feet slapping the floor. Oh my goodness, I was exhausted when I got home. It said, my phone said, oh, you've, you've done your best run ever. My heart rate was so high. I was so scared. Can you imagine doing that if it was still dark or foggy in the morning? And this doesn't happen just once. It happened like four or five times on the run. I was exhausted. How much radox did I have to put in the bath that day? A lot, let me tell you. But it's I hadn't plateaued anymore. Uh, so there we go. So that's, that's the story of what's happened this week. But anyway, let's get on. So the first book, Essex Dogs by Dan Jones. Let me tell you about this book. So Dan, we know him. We know him. He's a historian. He's written lots of non-fiction books. He's a very clever chap. But can he write fiction books, we ask? We answer, yes, he can. Here's the blurb. July 1346. The Hundred Years' War has begun and King Edward and his lords are on the march through France. But this war belongs to the men on the ground. Swept up in the bloody chaos, a tight-knit company from Essex must stay alive long enough to see their home again. With sword, axe and longbow, the Essex dogs will fight. Here we go. Let's do the first sentence. Christ bones, wake up. Love day. Fitztalbot jerked his head up. Father had dug him in the ribs with a sharp elbow. Despite the cold saltwater spray that whipped his face, the rocking of the landing craft had lulled him into a moment of sleep. He had dreamed he was at home, but now his eyes were open again. He saw that he was not. They were still here, out at sea, as far from home as they had ever been, getting further from it every second. Oh, wow. What a great history book. I mean, I learned so much from it. I really did. And I enjoyed it. Yes, there's a lot of, of, of violence and all sorts of yeah, gore. And yes, it, it's not it's not for someone that's just wanting to read a light, a light romance, funnily enough. But not only is there guts in, in the book, there's guts in the story. And that's what I loved. And um, yeah, so let's talk to Dan now. So Dan Jones, author of the wonderful Essex Dogs. Welcome to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm very interested to talk to you about this. Obviously, your first fiction book you've achieved so much in the non-fiction space what happened did you run out of history to talk about for, for non-fiction <laughs> not quite uh, but sort of so I'd written 10 non-fiction books the 10th of which was a very big book called Powers and Thrones which is a history of the whole of the Middle Ages and I slightly didn't know what where to go from there with non-fiction um, or or felt like doing something a bit different. And I turned 40 as well. And, you know, I've got a sort of thing about round numbers. And I felt like that I should I should mark the, the 40th birthday in the 10th book by doing something different. And, you know, and over the years, people had asked me quite a few times to do or whether I would do fiction as well as nonfiction, I guess, because my nonfiction style um, leans mm. somewhat into kind of scenic narrative, although it's more derived from screenwriting than from from uh, from fiction in, in book form. And I kind of prevaricated and umdenard and said, God, no, I don't want to bring shame on my family by doing something like that. 
uh, badly. Uh, but after after a while, I just sort of decided to grow up a bit and uh, and give it a whirl because I had I had a sort of idea and I had a setting and I had a group of characters and so I just really needed like a uh, uh, little nudge over the edge uh, to get me doing it, which I got in the summer of 2019, and that's when I started sort of preliminary work on the book that's now Essex Dogs. When I talk to authors who previously have written fiction and then gone to non-fiction, they find it much harder to move across to non-fiction. I'm interested for you, having gone down the non-fiction route first, was it was it harder to actually let your imagination go completely wild? Yeah, it's a different um, approach for sure, or I found it a different approach for sure. In non-fiction, I'm a very structural writer and the architecture of the books uh, sits deep and sort of rigid beneath them. And I do a lot of pre-planning work on my non-fiction books and they, they, they have a sort of a substructure to them that's quite fixed and, and determines the shape of the book and the, the process of the writing. And I'd been told by um, such insignificant writers as George R. R. Martin and Bernard Cornwell that that wouldn't really fly in fiction and I might find some difficulties if I did that. Uh, but I didn't believe them really, you know, hard-headed enough that I got to feel it to believe it. And but they're, they're obviously completely right. I found that the thing I had to adapt to or get used to was the uncertainty of sitting down um, with a vague idea of where the story was going to go, but having to sort of relax into it and let the characters do as they please and not do as I had had foreseen they might. Um, and it's I found it difficult at first. I, f- I found the process a bit like, do you remember the magic eye puzzles? Uh, you Maybe you're too young. No. But there was magic eye puzzles back in the day where you had to just relax your eyes and then a 3D image would appear from some scrambled dots. Uh, I felt it was like that, uh, to sort of just chill mm. and let the let things come. And that's a very different sort of frequency to operate on than writing nonfiction. But I kind of prefer it Ooh. in a way maybe it's the novelty but I, I definitely felt like yeah I could I could really get into this oh interesting so uh yes that's it non-fiction career is 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 done fiction from here on in not per se although I mean I've got another two fiction books to write I mean Essex Dogs is the first of a trilogy so I'm I'm, I'm committed but I'm also committed to writing another non-fiction book so I've, I've sort of I'm hedging slightly in case this is a total disaster, <laughs> which it still could be. I don't think so. So the book grabs us and takes us on quite an adventure. Let's talk the timing. So we start at 1st of July, 1346. Why that time? July 1346 uh, was the time when Edward III, at the early in the Hundred Years' War, landed the biggest expeditionary force to have left England for France landed on the beaches of Normandy, put ashore 15,000 troops plus support um, staff units. And that began uh, a sort of chevauchee-based campaign, a sort of campaign of terror, really, through uh, northern France, which ended um, just north of the Somme with the Battle of Crecy on the 26th of August, 1346. Now, that struck me as quite uh, an interesting campaign to write about for various different reasons. 
firstly because I just liked the scene of a Normandy beach landing a la Saving Private Ryan, sort of D-Day style landing, only set in the 14th century. I'd been to Omaha Beach, actually, um, must be New Year's Day 2019, I think, and had got to thinking that these beaches, whilst they'd seen, you know, incredible drama and, and the horror of D-Day in 1944, had seen something analogous in the Middle Ages. And it might be quite interesting to write about that with a sort of hybrid style that, that leaned into the kind of American hard-boiled whilst being, being set in the Middle Ages. That struck me as a kind of interesting project. And then uh, thinking about it some more, I thought, well, and then the Normandy campaign that ensues after that would have uh, would have dim sort of resonance with a kind of World War II book, but would could still be sort of of the 14th century. That that was the sort of loose idea of a kind of of a, a, a real life campaign that could be turned into an interesting fictional plot. And let's talk characters. These Essex dogs, they've got such vibrant characters. Did they all crowd in your mind at once, announcing themselves as a group, or did they come to you one by one? Yeah, so the the dogs themselves came before the plot. So I had sitting on my computer for years... From from like early 2017, I think, a file was just called Essex Dogs and it had some kind of character sketches of this group of mercenary slash freebooters who would serve in royal armies when there was a fight on, but I would otherwise go find a fight somewhere else. Um, and their characters in the initial sort of sketches were not quite the characters who emerged in the writing of Essex Dogs, but but the concept of this little kind of platoon, this little company uh, with a kind of a, a, a unitary bond between the men, but also some uh, some fractures between them as well. That, that was kind of in my mind. And when I sat down to start writing seriously, they, they emerged sort of one by one. It was like a kind of brood of eggs hatching. Some of them came very clear early and then others others emerged as the story went on but um but they were they're a fun group of people to hang around with and by the end i mean and i think this is maybe a sign that i'd, I'd succeeded in, in what i'd set out to do uh, they they seemed very very real and i was i was quite um sad when i finished the book and had to leave them did they leave you because for some some authors they do leave when they finish the book and for others they've still got some of the characters in in their ear oh no they're still around hmm. they're definitely still around um they are real to me and uh, you know by the end of the book and I, I'm speaking as a total novice here, and I'm sure some experienced authors who are listening will be like, yeah, no shit. Uh, but by the end of the book, this um, they, were, they were just real people and were doing what they wanted to do. And I was really just sort of, it was a privilege to sit and chronicle their activities. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty real. And they're coming back, at least some of them are, for, uh, for book two. I mean, it is an adventure book. You've got the highs, you've got the lows. How did you manage those thrills? Did the the variances come naturally to you or did you have to think, oh, no, I need more downtime in this one? How did that go? Well, in some senses, their, uh, their adventures are given to them by the history. So the, the book follows faithfully on a day-by-day level the the course of the Cressy campaign, but its purpose is to 
kind of play counterpoint with the history. So the adventures that the dogs have on the Cressy campaign um, are sometimes they're sort of branching off where the, the known historical campaign goes and then meeting up with it. Or they're, they're, they're doing things which, if you know the history of the campaign, are quite funny because they they puncture the pomposity of chroniclers who are obsessed with the deeds of knights and they show how the ordinary people might have been experiencing um, the same sieges and the same battles and the same sort of skirmishes around bridges and things like that. Um, with regard to the, the kind of emotional arc along the way, that just, I guess that just sort of happened naturally. The, the, the aim of the story is to show in, in a sort of uh, in-your-face kind of way what the experience of the common soldier in a medieval army might have been, because it's something that's, that's almost entirely neglected by the historical sources. And so the, um, I just let them loose on history, <laughs> and they did what they pleased. And the balance of, of characters within the group of 10 meant that there was always someone having like getting way too excited and always someone trying to keep a lid on things. And, and, and so the story is really about their, their interactions, their friendships, their fallings out as they, as they go through this campaign. So it feels like you're, t- you're taking a non-fiction, you know, the, what exactly what happened and you're just adding flesh onto those bones. That's the, the difference between non-fiction and fiction. Sort of. Um, so what we have, what, what non-fiction, what the real Cressy campaign, and this is tr- true to some extent of all historical fiction, I think, what the Cressy campaign gives this book is a spine of events. Mm-hmm. What the historical sources concerning those events are mainly obsessed with are what the kings, princes, uh, nobles and knights are doing. What mm-hmm. I'm interested in is what the ordinary folk are doing and the way in the beginning of each chapter of the book, there's a little quote from one of the real historical sources, which usually has something to do with, with the sort of nobility and the chivalry of the campaign. And then the text usually plays counterpoint. It usually says, "Yeah, but let's see it from you know the, these these historical sources are concerned really with about." 400 people within this army of 15,000. I'm concerned with the other 14,600. And so it's, it takes those experiences and, uh, and reimagines what this campaign must, could have looked like, could have looked like, not must have looked like. So the next time you not discover a piece of history, because obviously you're aware of everything, but you, you delve into it. Literally a everything. Yeah, I'm yeah. aware of literally everything. Yeah, everything. Yeah. There is nothing um, that you're not fully onto. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if there's a, a piece, a time in history that you really start looking into more, where will you be pulled to automatically now? Will it be to cover it as non-fiction or what might it be to continue this fiction approach? That's a really good question. Um well, I suppose what attracted me, I can only really speak to Essex, so I can't speak to what I'm going to do in the future, because I, I tend to be very poor at predicting what I'm going to do in the future. Um, but what attracted me to Essex Dogs was this was something I'd written about before in nonfiction, and I wanted to come to again from a different angle. I can imagine doing that with some other areas of history that I've written about. So, for example, this would probably be quite a commercial idea. I wrote a book about the Templars. I could imagine writing 
another book about the Templars that was instead of non-fiction that was fiction and well we all know the books about the Templars by people called Dan often do quite well um yeah. or the Crusades which I've written about you know I can I can imagine going back to t- this this would probably be quite a sweet spot for me because it would mean that I, I I felt confident enough to approach that world with a degree of of historical knowledge that would be freeing enough to allow me just to get on with the writing of the fiction I can imagine going to the Crusades, or going to the Walls of the Roses, or going to the Templars, or going to, um, I don't know, a, 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 the the last chunk of my book, Powers and Thrones, which I mentioned before, were, had a, a, a big section about printing and the Reformation, you know, the early 15th century, early 16th century. I can imagine going to all of those places with fiction now um, and having quite a lot of fun. Uh, I'd, you know, coming to an, a completely new age, that would be a big and quite difficult question to answer should I treat this as fiction or non-fiction um, I don't know how I'd respond to that hypothetical let's go for some quick fire questions now put you on the spot sure 1346 or 2022 always take uh, 2022 because it's post painkillers I've got a rule that I'm not going back in time to <laughs> anywhere pre-reliable um, uh, analgesia if that's what I mean if there's no paracetamol that's not a time no fair enough okay lots of edits or no edits editing constantly it's the thing i do i edit every night i have an hour nine till ten when i'm writing that's edit out okay fair enough book cover or book title the titles usually set very early the book cover comes much later title yeah i'm going title but I mean, Essex, well, this, I know this is supposed to be quick, but Essex Dogs, it was called Essex Dogs just because I'd been listening to a song called Essex Dogs when I was writing the notes about this gang back in 2017. And I just carried on working on that document and never changed the title. And eventually uh, they were like, why are they called, why is it called Essex Dogs? And I was like, ah, because they're called the Essex Dogs. You know, so, but, so I was quite wedded to that title for a long time. Uh, so title, definitely title. At the end, do you just do the final full stop or do you actually type the end? I've done both, actually. And I stopped typing the end a few books ago because they always delete it. Although I think one of my books does have the end. I read a really tiny little ghost story called The Tale of the Tailor and Three Dead Kings. And I think they kept the end in there because it looked sort of uh, ye olde and it fitted the aesthetic of the book. (laughs) But by and large, it it gets deleted, so why bother? (laughs) And then final quickfire one, audiobook or e-book? I don't really consume either. I'm like an old-fashioned paper guy i do read most of my audiobooks uh whereas i have almost no involvement with the ebooks so in terms of personal investment audio that makes sense if you weren't focusing on historical fiction is there a genre of fiction that you would quite enjoy having a go at writing i would i would write uh i would write crime I'm a big sort of, I like James Elroy and I like, uh, you know, well, that whole run from Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler through to Elroy. I like uh, American underworld crime. And that's that's what I'd like to do if I had my way and the ability, which I don't. Let's not let's not rule it out. Is the publication process (laughs) different for a fiction book compared to the nonfiction book? Yeah, it's different um, because you don't tend to have footnotes, indexes, um, endnotes. The, you know, the, the sort of 
uh, scholarly paraphernalia that sits with a non-fiction book. So there's in some way less kind of um, granular intensity to the, the the fiction editing process. However, there's a much greater concern with um, overall sort of emotional flow and uh, and and the sort of the texture of of the writing. Um, so the, the different kind of energies, uh, they, they have, you know, it's editing's editing. You, you're making things good. And that's, that's always a, a, a process of, of deep concentration, just of different sorts. I just have to ask if you could go back to when you were writing your first book, obviously that was the nonfiction, but when you were at that point, when you were just starting to write it, mm. is there anything that you would whisper in your ear? Get on with it. For God's sake, you know, my first nonfiction book took me nearly four years to write, and it was only eighty thousand words. I just didn't know what I was doing, and there was no, I'm, you know, there's no training course really, or there wasn't that I'd been on, and I was, I was just not very good at working on my own, and I didn't know how to do it, and I didn't. It took me quite a long time to learn that in order to write, you've got to sit down and and do it and stop lying to yourself about when you're going to do it. I was terrible. I was always lying to myself. I would be like, eh, well, I don't, I don't feel the call to write at this very moment. That's like, you know, 10.39 on uh, a Thursday morning. So I think I'm just going to kind of doss around all day. But it's okay because I'm going to write this evening. That's just, that was just plainly untrue. And then it's, well, it's okay. I'll work on the weekend. Well, it's a, and then t- you know, months would go by of, of almost nothing being produced. And the, 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 the secret is you've got to sit there and do it. And if you don't sit there and do it, it don't get done. So I'd have told myself, uh, I'd have had a, a sort of stern timetabling conversation with my younger self. <laughs> but as it turned out, I learned it anyway. So, you know, and I did have fun dossing around and spending all the money I was supposed to be living on. So I, 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 I don't regret that. And I, maybe it would be unkind and... Uh, maybe I'd be depriving myself of something if I went back and did that. Now, before I leave you, we do just have to talk tattoos. Um, you, you are a man mm. of a number of tattoos. Several, yes. Uh, will Will there be an Essex dog one added? No, I don't think so. Um, and partly that's an issue of space. I'm 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 genuinely running out of, <laughs> of room above the waist and and don't want to go below the waist for aesthetic reasons. What we have got are these amazing window designs that um that a guy called ash fields has done in bookshops up and down the country for the launch of essex up and down the uk for the launch of essex dogs uh and ash and i've collaborated on him bringing to life you know in, in portrait form the dogs themselves and they've only i mean they're still going up on the windows ash is traveling around doing it at the moment and I've just been posting his work in progress on my Instagram and people are already saying, oh, I'm going to get that as a tattoo. So it, it might not be me that gets it, but somebody will get it. That And, you know, that being said, somebody got a tattoo of my face the other day and sent me a photo of it. And I, I found that um, mildly disconcerting on their on their tummy. Gosh, was it a, a like was it a good um, rendition of your face? Was it done well? It was recognisably me. I'll give you that. I don't want to like say much more than that, but, and I can't really, I can't really detach my weirded outness at somebody doing that from my kind of aesthetic appreciation of the likeness itself. 
So I'm going to reserve judgment. Well, that's that's dedication. That's life is strange. Life is strange. It, it is, and it I'll gets stranger and stranger. But uh, at least your books get better and better. So we'll end on that note. Oh, thank you. What a lovely segue and a kind compliment. I appreciate that. <laughs> so Dan Jones, whose latest book is Essex Dogs. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Coming up, we look at four other books and Alan Johnson answers five questions in five minutes. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Next book is One of Our Ministers is Missing by Alan Johnson. And Alan's going to come on and answer five questions. Um, and we've had him on before, which is wonderful. So it's great to be able to talk to him again. Listen to the blurb of this one. A government minister in the Foreign Office has vanished into thin air. On holiday in Crete, Lord Bellingham has been solo trekking in the White Mountains when he mysteriously disappeared. After a vast search and rescue operation, the local police have no leads, save for a mobile phone discovered on a mountainside. Assistant Commissioner Louise Mangan of the Met Police is sent to assist in the investigation, but soon discovers that there are more layers to this case than the local police realise. Lady Bellingham is less than forthcoming, the family nanny is hiding something, and a scandal is brewing back in London that could destroy the minister's reputation for good. Under pressure from the powers that be, can Louise find the missing minister, or will she discover something much more sinister at play? Let's do the first sentence. Come on, can she find the first sentence? I don't know why I say first sentence, because I never stick to the first sentence. But it's better than saying 
first several sentences anyway. Chapter one. Brady walked with the swagger of a man who considered himself invincible. Over six feet tall with strong features and a full head of dark hair flecked with grey, his weight was the same in middle age as it had been when he was 20. On this lovely spring day, the first good weather of the year, he cut an impressive figure sauntering along Stoke Newington High Street towards Stamford Hill on his way to confirm a business transaction, one of only two he'd need to make in 2017. Ah, just, I do enjoy these books. I really do. Um, I love the cover on this one as well. It's excellent. Anyway, let's go and talk to Alan now. So Alan Johnson, whose latest marvellous book is One of Our Ministers is Missing. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Philippa. It's lovely to be here. Uh, it's lovely to have you on again. You have five questions in five minutes if you are ready for these, but we don't have a stopwatch. You're OK. You're, you're safe here. The first one. Can you describe your book in less than a minute? It's a love story again, uh, but also a thriller. And it's about a minister going missing in the White Mountains of Crete. But there's a dimension over here as well, because it follows a contract killer called Brady, whose lives I've always been interested in the thought that a contract killer would be going to Tesco's to get their shopping, doing their laundry and all of that. And so I've tried to kind of put the uh, the humdrum life of a contract killer in it as well. Was that interesting to get in that mindset? Well, I heard someone say that the people they really enjoy, the characters they really enjoy writing are the bad ones, and I think that's true. <laughs> I mean, the good ones are lovely, but yes. always a bit boring, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's a real character to the baddies, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Next question, who is your favourite major and your favourite minor character to write? I mean, we might have covered that a bit, but, yeah, who is your favourite? Major Louise Mangan mm. uh, is my detective. And I like writing about Louise because I'm kind of, you know, with each book, this is the second one, but I'm on writing the third one now. It broadens her character a bit and I find out a bit more about her life. I mean, I'm inventing it, but in a sense, I'm finding it out as well. And I like Louise because she's a, she's a woman in her kind of late 50s who uh, has had one broken marriage. Is kind of There's a romance in the book. She's the romance element in this book with a Greek policeman called uh, Petros Diamantopoulou. This practice... I'm, just I'm glad you said that. Of that yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, and she's got two kids. And, I, you know, I broaden her character out, I hope, with every book. But, you know, to me, she's a very real person. Minor, minor character. I suppose, I suppose Brady's another major character. But minor characters, I think the commissioner so she works to a commissioner and I don't give the commissioner a name in the first book the late train to Gypsy Hill in this book I do name him as George Irving and um I like George I mean he's he's a Cumbrian from Carlisle and does things his own way and I think for police officers who don't jump about responding to every you know qualm of the London mayor or the Home Secretary, I think they've got their own road to furrow. And so George, in a sense, is my is voicing my views about how the police should run. Mm. I should say, although it's the second book in the sort of series, you don't have to have read the first 
if you haven't got round to it, you're very no. gentle as an author with readers and allow us straight into this story. Yeah, well, I did that with my memoirs as well, because I did three volumes and then a musical memoir. And I was always conscious that if you picking up the second book you don't have to go buy back and buy the first so yeah it's self-contained okay your next question what three things do you want us to feel as we are reading the book I'll go first if that's okay while you're having a think I felt intrigued because the story drew me in straight away and I really wanted to know what was going to happen. I was concerned as to how, you know, who, what was going to happen, how it's all going to work out. And then I also felt rewarded at the end of the sort of the, yeah. the passage of the story. Yeah. Well, I think I would, your last one, I wouldn't put it as rewarded, contented. Contented that you bought this book. And you spent all those and it was hours, worth it. Hours <laughs> reading it. Yeah, and it was worth it. So I think contentment. But I would start off with excitement. You know, that there's a, mm. a real kind of incentive to turn the page. Interest. Interest in the characters, you know, that you feel that they're living, breathing human beings. I think if you can get the characters right and if people believe in them, like them, fear them if it's, you know, someone evil or whatever you can you can do whatever you like with them and the reader will come with you. And we did. We did go with you on that, definitely. Oh, that's brilliant. The next question. Now, you've been asked a lot of questions in your time, Alan, but I don't know if you've been asked this one before. So here we go. <laughs> what food and drink did you consume while you were writing this particular book? What was your go-to refreshment? Oh, goodness. Well, I suppose... In the actual writing of it, I write in the early morning, 7.30, if you can call that early. I was a former postman, so to me, that's midday. I mean, yes. is proper early. And it was always a kind of routine of uh, a rooibos tea uh, and then another rooibos tea and then a milky coffee made with uh, soya barista uh, uh, milk. Nothing to eat at all. So food was a kind of interruption to the writing process. So during writing, it was it was just that. Although, um, yeah, be interesting when you ask me the question on the for the next book when it's published because I've got such a tough deadline that I went on holiday for two weeks, a week of which was a cruise, and I wrote every day. I had to write every day. So then it was less rooibos more Greek wine. And did that help or hinder the writing? <laughs> Hinders. <laughs> so when you've written this book, One of Our Ministers is Missing, you you hadn't had any breakfast, you were sitting down. Was it hunger that was driving you then to finish your words for the day so you could eat? Yeah, I've had, had some breakfast. I had some, okay. some yoghurt and some sort of granola, uh, small bowl. But then when it got to writing... That was the end of, yeah. So I'd had enough to keep me going. So no interruptions and no no sugar to uh, support you in nope. the journey. No, don't need sugar. It's bad for you. Terrible. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> As a former health secretary, I tell you. Yes. <laughs> sugar does you no good whatsoever. <laughs> 
Yes. I do find with some authors it does help the writing process, though, the creativity. Yeah. But, uh, no, well, so does wine, yeah. I have to say, going back to my to my cruise. <laughs> but everything you've written looks fabulous. And then when you're sober, it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you're drinking your rooibos the next morning, it looks awful. The edits after that are, yeah. are quite extraordinary. Um, your last question, this might be a tricky one for you because there's so many. What's been your most memorable moment in your writing career? Oh, receiving the Ondaatje, Royal Society of Literature Ondaatje Prize and the Orwell Prize. But I got the Ondaatje Prize first. So it's the first award. And because it was the Royal Society of Literature and it was my first book, this boy, my childhood memoir and because it was about uh, evocation of creating a mm. a world for the reader and mine was the post-war world of um uh, of north kensington where i grew up i mean that was just amazing wonderful and very rewarding as your books are for us so alan johnson whose latest book is one of our ministers is missing thank you so much for joining me today thanks philippa it was a delight thanks Next book is Black Hearts by Doug Johnston. You have heard me talk about Doug's books many a time. This is a series, the Skelf series, as I call them, which are based around a group of women who run a funeral parlour and a detective agency. And each book takes us further into their lives and just keeps grabbing us as we go. Um, let me read you the blurb on this one. The Skelf women live in the shadow of death every day, running the family funeral directors and private investigator business in Edinburgh. But now their own grief intertwines with that of their clients and they are left reeling by shocking past events. A fistfight by an open grave leads Dorothy to investigate the possibility of a faked death, while a young woman's obsession with Hannah threatens her relationship with Indy and puts them both in mortal danger. An elderly man claims he's being abused by the ghost of his late wife, while ghosts of another kind come back to haunt Jenny from the grave, pushing her to breaking point. As the Skelfs struggle with increasingly unnerving cases and chilling danger lurks close to home, it becomes clear that grief, in all its forms, can be deadly. Let's do first sentence. Sentences. Chapter 1. Dorothy. The atmosphere in Liberton Cemetery was off. Dorothy pulled at her cuffs as she walked behind the four pallbearers, carrying Kathleen Frame to her last resting place. The starchy Church of Scotland minister had just finished an awkward service in the kirk behind them and that energy followed them out to the graveyard. Ah, uh, these... It sounds so trite to say they keep getting better and better, but they do. And the first book was brilliant, so what does this make this one? I love this series very much. I care about the characters. I can't believe what they have to deal with in their lives. I am fully committed to this. It's another auto by Doug Johnson just writes so vividly. His characters are great. The the pace, the thrills, the humour, everything. Um, yeah, extraordinary. Very, very good. Let me move that and let me grab another book that is very, very good. I've just finished reading this one. Four Treasures of the Sky by Jenny Tiguzang. Now, this was, I got this from the Goldsboro bookshop. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they've got this like monthly subscription service where you get one book a month. You don't know what it's going to be. They've chosen it. It's normally a new release 
and it's done beautifully sprayed edges. Yes, I'm easily bought. Love a sprayed edge. And it's signed and numbered as well. So this one is beautiful pink sprayed edges with this gorgeous Chinese writing. And I've got number 61 of 1,500 books signed by the author and it's signed beautifully. Very neat signature, much neater than mine. This isn't a book that I would ever have picked up if it hadn't plopped on my doorstep and I thought, oh, well, if Goldsboro have chosen it, it must be good. I just, otherwise, I wouldn't have read it. I was so happy reading this because although it's a hard book to read, hard things happen, it consumes me and I love it when a book does that. So let's tell you what this is. Dayu never wanted to be like the tragic heroine for whom she was named, revered for her beauty and cursed with heartbreak. But when she is kidnapped and smuggled across an ocean from China to America, she must relinquish the home and future she dreamed of. Over the years that follow, she is forced to keep reinventing herself to survive, from a calligraphy school to a San Francisco brothel to a small town in the Idaho mountains. We follow her on a desperate quest to outrun the tragedy that chases her. As an anti-Chinese sentiment sweeps across the country in a wave of unimaginable violence, she must draw on each of the selves she has been, including the ones she most wants to leave behind, in order to finally claim her own name and and story. Honestly, this really was a book, a book and a half. Okay, here's the, here's the, I'm just going to read you the first two sentences. When I am kidnapped, it does not happen in an alleyway. It does not happen in the middle of the night. It does not happen when I am alone. This book is amazing. It's heartbreaking. It's so hard to read and yet wonderful to read because, as I say, it's one of these consuming stories. I thought it was amazing and I'm going to be telling everyone about this book. And again, I commend Goldsboro Books because it just, this wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought this was a book for me. And don't you love it when books are like that? Yes, the books that I've already talked about, I knew I was going to like them and I did. But this one was just like a slap in the face. I had no idea that I would be that consumed. So as you can tell, I liked it. So that's that book. And then finally, this is one that I read on holiday. True crime story, Joseph Knox. Okay, here we go. In the early hours of Saturday, 17th of December, 2011, Zoe Nolan, a 19-year-old Manchester University student, walked out of a party alone. She was never seen again. Seven years later, writer Evelyn Mitchell finds herself drawn into the mystery and begins piecing together what really happened back then. But where some versions of events make sense, others are troublingly inconsistent. One thing is for sure, Zoe isn't the woman she was pretending to be. And she may be missing, presumed dead, but her story is only just beginning. Let's do the first sentence. Well, there's a publisher's notes, which is part of the story, but this is like a news report that I'll read to you, or the beginning of it. In the early hours of Saturday, 17th of December 2011, Zoe Nolan, a 19-year-old Manchester University student, walked out of a party taking place in the shared accommodation where she'd been living for three months. She was never seen again. Now, if you like books like The Appeal, um, where you've got lots of different information coming from different sources, then you might like this. I liked it, but I didn't love it. But 
I think it, that was my fault because I was reading on holiday. I just read some books that absolutely consumed me. And then I think I'd run out of my consumability. So for me, I'd say this is a grown up version of The Appeal. It's not as easy a read as The Appeal is. It's good. It's almost really good, except the who and the what happened to her. I did. I wasn't satisfied by that. And that's unusual for me. So it's it's a weird book. Um, it's loved by so many. The ending, I was just like, really? I'm not. Uh. So read it. Tell me what you think. I'm sure it was just me. As I say, lots of people love and rate this book. So my bad. But read it. Tell me what you think. I love hearing from you about, you know, what, what you think. And uh, yeah, let me know. So there we go. I've waffled enough. Let's just do a quick recap and then I'll send you on your way. So we've had Essex Dogs by Dan Jones and Dan very kindly joined us for a full interview. We've had One of Our Ministers is Missing by Alan Johnson and Alan very kindly joined us to answer five questions in five minutes. We've had Black Hearts by Doug Johnston, Four Treasures of the Sky by Jenny Tingu Zhang and True Crime Story by Joseph Knox. That's your lot. I can't wait to talk to you again next week. I've got some brilliant books. I've got some brilliant authors to talk to. There's just lots going on. So I'm off to go and run and avoid zombies again. And let's just hope I survive for next week if I talk to you in like I'm a wheezy, rattly way. <laughs> next week, you know. I've turned into a zombie. So there you go. I'll, I'll leave it there. Anyway, have a great week and look after yourselves and I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.